Empowered Sleep Apnea, the book, is now available in both the hardback, which is just beautiful and really showcases the art nicely, but also in ebook form for Apple iBook and Kindle. Are you tired of guessing? Try on some empowerment for yourself. We've got just your size. Want more information? Good. Go to www.empoweredsleepapnea.com and click the tab that says book. And hey, many thanks. Empowered Sleep Apnea is an educational podcast, which is a bit different from a medical advice show. Medical decision-making can be complex, and even empowered patients need a partner. So play it smart and make sure you discuss your case with your personal health care provider before making any changes to your medical treatment plan. And now, on with the show. <laughs> Empowered Sleep Apnea, Episode 2, Many Moving Parts. Driving back to the sleep clinic to drop off his home sleep apnea testing kit, Robert could feel his anxiety coming back. Until recently, he had never been to the doctor and always felt like he was perfectly healthy. Then, just after turning 50, he is found to have atrial fibrillation, atrial fibrillation, which was causing only minimal symptoms, but because there's a strong association between atrial fibrillation and sleep apnea, his cardiologist did a screening test and had him wear an oximetry probe on his finger when he slept. The picture that came back didn't need a degree in rocket science to figure out that something was wrong. Across the whole recording, the oxygen level bounced up and down zigzagging across the page like a child's drawing of a lawn that badly needed mowing. At first, Robert didn't understand why a cardiology appointment would lead to a sleep clinic visit. And at first he felt really defensive and hostile toward the notion of everyone just trying to sell him more expensive things that he didn't think he needed. When Robert explored his situation with his doctor and they discussed the notion of sleep satisfaction, It started as a simple yes or no question. Are you satisfied with your sleep? And at first, Robert said that everything was fine. So that means you sleep through the night without difficulty and you don't feel sleepy during the day? The doctor answered. Well, it turns out the answer to that was a dead no. After exploring some of the things he'd been experiencing, it was clear Robert had been having problems. His sleep satisfaction was actually fairly poor. He often had difficulty getting to sleep. His sleep was perceived to be poor quality and light stage, poor quality and light stage. with frequent perceived awakenings in order to urinate. Moreover, he experienced nasal congestion nearly every morning and was really unable to sit still for any duration of time without dozing off. His wife rolls her eyes at him because he can never make it through the movies at night. The doctor explained that the first step of the empowered sleep apnea method is to understand the five reasons to treat. And the first of the five reasons to treat is that sleep apnea carries risk. Risk for what? Well, risk for early demise. The doctor went on to explain that not all sleep apnea is the same. There's different types and they mean different things. He explained that a sleep study would help sort this out.
The week passed quickly, and now here Robert was, dropping off the equipment he had worn the night before. It wasn't as bad as he had expected. The equipment was easy enough to put on, and they said he could otherwise sleep in any position that he wanted. The equipment he wore was straightforward enough. There was a cannula under his nose that looked sort of like one of those oxygen cannulas he'd seen on patients in the emergency room. Only this thing didn't give him oxygen, but was going to detect air going in and out of him, measuring his functional breathing. Around his chest and abdomen were belts that were stretchy. These measured his efforts to breathe. The technician told him that during central apneas, these belts show no movement at all. When the airway is not obstructed, they move together. And if the person is breathing against a closed airway, this is called an obstructive apnea, she told him, the abdominal and thoracic effort bands will be out of phase with each other, seesawing back and forth as the person tries in vain to pull air into their lungs. On his finger was an oximeter, similar to the screening oximeter he wore when the cardiologist ordered it. And pinned to his shirt was a box about the size of an old Sony Walkman. The technician told him that this thing had a microphone and a position sensor built into it, so it'd be possible to document snoring and the position of sleep he was in. He managed to get to sleep with the contraption in place and only had to reposition the cannula twice. As usual, he was up about four times to urinate, which made him wonder how anyone was going to get any useful information out of the test. All told, though, he thinks he slept for about four hours, and he was getting anxious to learn about the results. The following Monday, after checking the patient portal every day for a week, he felt his heart jump as he logged on. He moved the cursor over to the result until the cursor changed, indicating he could click to open it. He hesitated, feeling that sick feeling of anxiety. When he looked at the results, what was he going to see? He opened his sleep study report to find acronyms, numbers, and another oximetry graph again looked like a bad drawing of a neglected lawn. In the doctor's impression it said, severe mixed sleep apnea. Recommend patient return to clinic to discuss next steps. He felt his hands shaking as he dialed the sleep clinic. Severe? Well, what does that mean? He punched his way through the telephone tree to select the option that allowed him to make an appointment. He felt woozy. He felt sick. Sheila could hear his voice from the next room as he spoke to the receptionist with increasing agitation. When? When? What do you mean, when? What do you mean, when? As soon as possible! Welcome back to Empowered Sleep Apnea, a podcast where you learn about sleep apnea through the power of stories from a patient-centered perspective. I'm Dr. David McCarty, and I'm here with Dr. Ellen Stothard. Hi, Dave. Hey, Ellen. It's great to see you again in the studio. Yeah. I am feeling the emotion from this story. That is for sure. It's just holding. It's hypnotic. <laughs> in episode one, we left him slightly calmed down, right? 
Yeah, I feel like he was he was okay. There's a trajectory here. Yeah, and but he came in really angry because he didn't know why he was there, and finally we got to the bottom of his narrative, and he understood kind of the things that brought him there in the first place, and understood why he was there. Now he's got a hold of the sleep study, and he's starting to panic. He got the uh, information off the portal. This is the way things happen sometimes, is you get the information before you, you have a chance to talk to someone about it. And now he is finding that he is really wanting some information. I, I listened to the way that the story describes the tech talking to him and giving him all this information. And the tech doesn't really explain all of it. She just says what's happening. And so I heard these words like obstructive and central and all these different things and thoracic, abdominal. And I was like putting on my patient hat and really thinking, man, there's a lot of vocabulary here. It's a lot to take in. A lot of people just shut down. You know, I think one of the things that I'm learning from this exercise where we're talking our way through this and, um, and we're learning from the cartoons that I'm drawing along the way is that part of what I needed to understand as a physician was that the, the anger and the hostility and, and some of the, the, the lashing out that we see in, in a character like Robert, that all is a form of suffering. Suffering. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you see that kind of indicates that to you? Well, it's obviously displaying intense discomfort. Yeah. You know, in my family, we have a term called sudden overwhelming intolerance. I saw a guy a day before yesterday at a traffic light. I was waiting to go straight. He was waiting to turn left. And so we were both sitting there with our red lights. Mm -hmm. He had a red arrow and I had a red light. And this is a really long red light. I mean, just ridiculously (laughs) long. And, you know, the other street is usually really busy, but there's no one on it. So we're just sitting there quietly, no traffic at our red lights. And I'm watching this man and I watch his face start to twitch. Mm. And then I watch him nod to himself and then he just takes off, just runs the red light. And, of course... (laughs) A second later. Five seconds later, it turns green. But he, you know, he just had enough. Yeah. It was just, he reached that point. Yep. And I I think Robert is there. Now that you describe that in such detail, I can definitely identify some places in my life where that's happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've all been there. We've all been there. And I think that, you know, he's, he's worried. Now he sees these words severe, you know, and he's read a little bit, but he doesn't know anything yet. And he just wants to ask a couple of questions. You yeah. Know? And and he right now, he, seeing all these numbers, he's kind of terrified. I think what we need to do is we need to prepare Robert. We need to prepare Robert for his journey, for his journey to the first step, which is the five reasons to treat. You remember the uh, Isle of Sleep apnea map? Yes. Where where would Robert be right now? So I, I, I mean, he's still in, in his bay of narrative a little bit. He's yeah, he's kind of washed up there, isn't yeah. he? And he's he's still sort of getting his head together on his journey to the um, the five reasons to treat monument and, and coffee hut. And coffee hut. And coffee hut. Yes. So he's not there yet. He's not ready to be there yet. 
because in order to talk about the first step of that monument, which is called risk, risk. we have to understand the terms. You know, we can't talk central obstructive if we don't even know what these terms mean. I've got sort of an idea that there's a vocabulary lesson that we need to get through. We need to help Robert understand this. So for this exercise, I need you to advocate for Robert. Okay. Okay, so pretend that you don't know any of these terms at all. Okay. And that you are mystified by this and you are, you're caught up in Robert's turmoil. I'm in his shoes. You're in his shoes. This is patient-centered stuff. We need to go through this so that you understand because you're a you're a detailed person, you know? Yes. You want to know what these terms mean. So I call this form of suffering that Robert is, you know, this turmoil that he feels in the pit of his stomach that's making him lash out. He would never yell at a bank teller. He would never yell at a bank teller. You know, he would never yell at a person at the library because his book wasn't there. This is something different. This is something that is stirring him into hostility. That's a form of suffering. I call that suffering the suffering of ignorance. Because he doesn't know. He doesn't know, and he's lashing out as a reaction. Right. Without even knowing that why he's lashing out, probably. That's right. That's right. Before we get into um, what Robert needs to know, I, I want to get into this week's cartoon. Okay. So, um, and I want to do it early because it's also, it gets into this idea of the frustration and the suffering of ignorance. Yeah. So this week's cartoon is kind of the experience through the patient's eyes, right? As they're being thrust into this world of providers who are caring for sleep apnea. Yeah. It's really kind of wild out there in the real world. It's almost like you're kind of walking down Hollywood Boulevard and you see all these different marquees. The patient doesn't know what to do. Sometimes I wish this was a visual show so you could see how high my eyebrows are. <laughs> <laughs> to, to make this cartoon, um, I was feeling something inside and I wasn't quite sure what it was. I, I was feeling anxiety on the part of the patient. That's what kind of got me there. And it wasn't until after it was drawn that I kind of realized what this was about. Yeah, that, so it kind of came full circle to kind of show you the image after you had created this feeling in your mind. Kind of back to that Vulcan mind meld situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think I get to learn something about this process by looking at the cartoons that I drew the day before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this one's really fantastic for this episode. So this is a black and white drawing, and it really feels like there's some dark lines, there's some light lines. I can see this image of him walking through his life just like periscope side to side and looking at all these different people who are basically with their hand out saying, no, I'll fix you, I'll fix you, I know what's best, and, you know, including the guy from the book club or whatever. <laughs> right. His crazy friend is giving him this offhand advice. Yeah, everybody's out there, and, and this is a side note, but when people come to you with their suffering or their medical questions, they don't always want you to tell them what the answer is. 
they need to be asked more questions as opposed to being everyone telling them what's true. Who are they to believe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we end with, you know, a, a really shocking kind of visual of Robert here with this target on his Right. Chest. And of course, in the cartoon, it's Claudio. You know, this could be Robert. What I'm saying here and what I was able to verbalize after putting this cartoon in conjuncture with Robert's story Mm -hmm. was that these are both examples of the suffering of ignorance. Absolutely. I can 100% see that. And it must be really hard for patients out there who don't know who's telling what truth, because I can look at these and be like, "Mm, mm, mm." but that's what we need to know. How do you use your words to ask the questions to find the answers that you need to know? And I I say that the answer is that the patient needs to be given some agency and that requires education. So, so the, the salve, the, the cure for the suffering of ignorance is of course knowledge. Knowledge. Yeah, Yeah. Knowledge and knowledge is empowerment. So that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to start with some vocabulary. This is a mixed sleep apnea syndrome. So what does that mean? Well, aren't you supposed to tell me I'm not? (laughs) So Robert, what do you think of yourself? Well, it's really interesting. So he's got some big, they're not even big words is the thing, but they're scary. So it's mixed and it's severe. What does that mean? So two different parts, right? So let's break it down. So when it's mixed, that means that there is both obstructive Obstructive. and central Central. things going on. So are there only obstructive and central and mixed? Are those the only options? Or tell me a little bit more about that. So for the purpose of this part of the conversation, we're going to break it down into two flavors of sleep apnea. And it makes it easier to understand. So the two flavors are obstructive sleep apnea and central sleep apnea. And one of the important teaching points here is it's very hard to separate them, and often you really can't. We do so for the purpose of trying to keep things understood and understandable, but these syndromes often overlap. Yes, okay. Let's talk about obstructive versus central first. That sounds good. Okay. So obstructive events. So an event. An event is an episode that lasts usually 10 to 20 seconds. Okay. Where the breathing is impaired. Okay. So it's an an episode, an occurrence, a, a situation where while you're asleep, your breath is impaired. You're not able to take oxygen into your lungs. You just don't get as much air as you should. Okay. And so it causes things to go a little haywire. Okay. Okay. So that's what an event is. Now, events can either be obstructive or central. So let's talk about obstructive events. Okay. So an obstructive event happens when a person is sucking air in towards their lungs and the equipment at the back of the throat gets sucked together so that it impedes the flow of air. It creates an obstruction. Exactly. It creates an obstruction to flow. 
If that obstruction is more or less complete, where the person is sitting there really struggling to breathe and it's like they have a cork in their airway, in that case you'll see their abdominal and their thoracic areas going up and down like a seesaw. That's called paradox. So there's these two different bands as part of the test that was described yep, in yep. the intro that one is higher up. One's around the chest. Yep, and one's around the, the belly. Yep, and so if the person, you can imagine this even, if there's an obstruction in there, trying to breathe in and their chest is bouncing, yep. but nothing's yep. going in. And so when they're trying to suck in, their chest will kind of suck in and the belly will go out and then vice, it just goes that back and forth. It goes that, seesawing yeah, back and that forth, that's right. Okay, okay. So, so that's an obstructive apnea. Usually in medical terms, ah means not. Oh, okay. Asystolic A, means yes. that you're not having systole, which means yes. your heart has stopped. So yeah. if you're apneic, pnea means breathing. Okay. All right. So if you have an apnea that's obstructive, that means the airway's blocked off. Hypopnea. Ooh, hypo. Less yep. than. Yeah, lower than, under. Hypopnea means that the airway is kind of blocked. Okay. So it's not a full apnea. Not a, oh, not a full okay. blockage. Yes. So imagine maybe like the straw gets kind of squinched up when you're trying to suck it mm -hmm. and you're, you can't get that shake through because it's kind of sucking a little oh. bit closed, but yep, you're getting yep, a yep. little bit. Yep. Okay. So if you if that's the way breath is going for several breaths in a row, you might drop your oxygen. It might cause you to be uncomfortable and wake up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Having that relative obstruction, that upper airway resistance, that is a form of disruption to both oxygen levels and to sleep stability. Yes, and I think that's an important thing to highlight because it's not only about the oxygen, but it's also about the sleep stability. An obstructive event doesn't have to be complete, we've just learned. A hypopnea, well, how do we define that? And actually, the way we define it is really important. <laughs> yes, yes. And this is something that I will say, honestly, coming from the research side of things, I didn't appreciate that when I was coming into the clinical world, mm -hmm. that it is important which yardstick, which measuring stick, where we draw the line. Absolutely. A hypopnea classically defined means that you have evidence of a flow limitation event. So on an airflow trace, normally good looking, healthy airflow looks more or less like a sine wave. Sine wave. When a sleep study is done, there is a little device underneath the nose, mm -hmm. and that is measuring air going in and out. Okay. And when that is done smoothly and normally, that tracing looks almost like a sine wave. Yeah, yeah. It looks perfect, up and down, nice and smooth, ups and downs. When you start to see something called upper airway resistance, the upper contour of it gets flattened. Okay. And it starts to get a little floppy, and it almost looks like Bart Simpson's haircut. <laughs> Okay, That's so it, it zigzags. Okay. That's called an upper airway resistance pattern. And so you can kind of see evidence of this uh, harsh air draw that, that has a limitation there. Okay. And when those flow limitation events are cyclic, meaning that they limit down, look like Bart Simpson, and then they recover and look like a sine wave again, mm -hmm. those are called cyclic flow limitation events. Okay. Okay. That's what obstructive pathology is all about. Okay. So the question is the magnitude of the flow limitation event. How much does it drop? And does it do something else? Does it cause a drop in oxygen? Does it cause a microarousal from sleep? So it's not actually what's happening that's causing the issues. It's again, what's it impacting? Yeah, that's right. 
classically defined, with all of that in mind, a hypopnea is a 30% drop in flow accompanied by a 4% drop in oxygen. Okay, let's break that down. So so we've got a drop in flow. So you just explained. That's that Bart Simpson airflow limitation event. Exactly. If that is followed by. A decrease in oxygen saturation. Measured by the finger probe. Okay. And if that's 4%, then that is the classic definition of a hypopnea. So maybe this is not a question I need to ask, but why 4%? Well, it turns out the definition of hypopnea has always caused disagreements. Even as late as the 1980s, you'd see significant variability from lab to lab in how hypopneas were defined. In the late 1980s, two major research studies got underway that would help us understand risk with sleep apnea, the Sleep Heart Health Study and the Wisconsin Sleep Cohort. These two studies are the largest population-based observational studies to prospectively, meaning in real time, follow a fixed group of people forward as they age, finding out who lives, who dies, what important diseases occurred and relating these occurrences to the presence and severity of sleep apnea. These studies would teach us that sleep apnea carries a clear signal for worsening survival, and that signal tracks with a metric called the Apnea Hypopnea Index, or AHI. The AHI is the number of apneas and hypopneas per hour. These two important studies defined their hypopneas using the 4% desaturation criterion. And that's important to remember because if we stick with this bar at 4%, it indicates a certain level of severity, right? Correct. Because here it's, okay, you meet the criteria, one check. And yeah. so if we change the criteria... And make it easier, then your scores are going to be seemingly worse. But yes. that's not what those data show. Yes. So we need to be real clear on which criterion we're using. So that's the 4% criterion. That's the criterion that Medicare and Medicaid still adhere to. So when they're talking about qualifying for a device, they're talking about a score that is obtained using the 4% rule. Hypopneas are kind of confusing because there's more than one definition. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine recognizes that lesser degrees of desaturations and arousals from sleep regardless of oxygen desaturations, are both important because those both are associated with other adverse outcomes. The definition of hypopnea, according to the AASM, is that it can cause a 3% desaturation or an arousal from sleep, as long as we've got that 30% drop in flow. Okay, so it still has the 30% drop in flow, but it changes to the 3% decrease. Or an arousal. Or an arousal. So it can be one of the two. Yeah, so ostensibly you can have a 1% oxygen desaturation or none at all. But if the flow limitation event causes a microarousal from sleep, which is an EEG finding, yes. that will be scored as a hypopnea. Okay, so that's where we're looking at the brain waves that the person has experienced during sleep. And we're seeing that they're transitioning because of this flow limitation, because they're not taking the the air inappropriately, they are waking up. So they're transitioning from a stage of sleep to wakefulness. And we can see this from their brain. Right. We can actually see their sleep being disrupted. Yeah. It doesn't have to be caused by the oxygen drop. Yes. And that, okay. That's something that I think people have a hard time getting their hands around. Okay. It's not all about the oxygen. So there's something else about having to struggle against a semi-closed airway is uncomfortable mm -hmm. and it feels yucky. And at some point it drives this response that rouses you up enough to clear the airway.
Yeah, and this is a pretty controversial thing in our world, right? Because we talk about this, the apnea hypopnea index, which characterizes the amount of events that you have. Right. And this has been our, our North Star. Yes. You know, we, we that's how we characterize everything in the clinical sleep apnea world. It's the index that we have seen map to mortality. So it maps to something extremely real and extremely hard. The higher the AHI goes, the higher the AHI goes, the more likely you are to leave this earth. We'll get to that in a minute. But there's a lot of problems with it. Yes. And there's a lot of nonlinearity yes. to it. Yes, and there's a lot of looking at other things like arousal and how it correlates and how these things all relate to each other in terms of the mortality and the health and the quality of the sleep. Yes. I don't know about you, but I believe that there will be a big data solution to this conundrum. Ooh, now we're getting off a little bit into the interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah, multiple, multiple different indices combined, I think, is going to be how this one gets figured out. Okay, so we've learned about apneas and hypopneas of the obstructive flavor. Mm -hmm. What about RERAs? Have you heard of that? Yes, I have. You have, but Robert hasn't. Oh, yeah, So of a RERA not. is a respiratory effort-related arousal. Okay. Kind of similar to what we were talking about before with a flow limitation. Yep. So can you explain how they might be different? So a rear is different from a hypopnea just by matter of degree. Basically, the way the manual describes it is anything that kind of looks like a flow limitation event that looks like it caused an arousal from sleep but doesn't meet the criteria for a hypopnea can be scored a rear. Okay, so if it has less than a 30% flow limitation yep. and it's tagged to an arousal from yep. sleep. Then you can call it a rear. Some okay. labs don't score rearas anymore because it seems a little redundant since arousals are built into the new AASM, new-ish, I should say, it's not new anymore the AASM criteria that allows arousals to be worked into the hypopnea definition. You know, I think the reason we're making this point on this episode is next episode, we're going to talk about the five reasons to treat. And the hardest one to talk about of all is risk. Risk. And how we discuss risk is based upon how we define hypopneas because hypopnea. that impacts how we define the apnea hypopnea index. Put that on the table for now. Okay. We are now moving to central apneas. Okay. Central apnea physiology. So we've moved to the other side of this mixed. Yeah, tree. this the, I'm putting this coin out uh -huh. on the table uh -huh. and I'm flipping it across. Okay. Right? Okay, so okay. we are on one side we got obstructive events. Obstructive events, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Turn it over on the other side, we got central events. Okay. And I'm I'm doing that for a reason because it seems like they are binary, like it's one or the other. And the point that I'm gonna make on this program is that they are often interlapping. Interlapping. That's a made-up word. Isn't it? <laughs> they often overlap with each other. Yeah, but I like interlapping almost because it's true. It's it's more descriptive of what's actually happening. So a central event means that the person quits trying to breathe. Maybe it's just reduced effort. Maybe it's absent effort for a few breath cycles duration. 
And because of that, there is something that happens afterwards. It causes perturbation, it causes instability. Okay, so because of this, this pause, what you get in response is a drop in oxygen or you know another arousal or something like that. So you see evidence that it's physiologically provocative. That's what central apnea physiology events are. I think we need to break that down for a second. So we're talking about central apnea physiology. So why is it called central, first of all? Because obstructive was very descriptive. Right, it was the cork in the bottle, right? Mm -hmm. Central. Central means that it is caused by an oscillation in the drive to breathe, which is generated by the brain. So hence central. Yes, because I think that's important for remembering the difference between the two. So you can really imagine that cork in the bottle or the collapsing straw yep. or whatever. And understanding that central means brain Yes, is not something that comes logically. Well, you know, and, and people kind of file it away and it's so foreign. And I've heard people say this, well, obstructive, I know it, but in the central, that's the brain, right? And it's almost as if, as if the level of complexity. That's a brain problem that I don't have because I would know if I had a brain problem. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of filed away in that that's something that other people have. So yes, it is caused by an oscillation of the respiratory control centers in the brainstem. But it is not something that is foreign because all of us, every single one of us, yes, you, even you listeners, <laughs> if you put us at a high enough elevation, we will exhibit central apnea physiology. Okay, I'll bite. Why is that? That's called high altitude periodic breathing. And it's just an example of this physiology being driven mad by the effects of altitude. So central apnea physiology happens for a number of different reasons. One of them has to do with this concept that's called loop gain. Loop gain. Loop gain is the idea that if you perturb the system, let's say you drop oxygen or more importantly, you raise the CO2 level. What does the system do in response? How reactive to that perturbation is this system? Okay, so kind of like it's twitchiness, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So if you have a twitchy furnace, okay, then maybe your house goes from way too hot to way oh, too cold. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you're, you're like, geez, why is it so freezing in here? And then the thing kicks on and all of a sudden it's 95 degrees. Mm -hmm. It's one or the other right. in those old buildings. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be sort of a high loop gain situation. Okay. It goes on and it, it doesn't turn off in time. Or maybe it goes on too robustly. In an elevated loop gain situation where there is elevated responsivity to shifts in carbon dioxide, people will sort of overcorrect. And what happens in sleep is that there will be um, transitions between sleep and wake. And there are different set points for carbon dioxide in the bloodstream for the waking brain compared to the sleeping brain. And if the tendency is to overcorrect during a microarousal, then the person essentially hyperventilates for three breaths and then falls back to sleep and the drive to, to breathe is gone for a short while. Okay. You're trying to adjust. Yes. Trying and to so adjust. Having trouble adjusting to different set points is, is challenging. That's exactly right. And so the, the respiratory responsiveness to CO2 is part of that drive for central apneas. A major contributor to loop gain is, believe it or not, the heart. As we age, cardiac function tends to decline, and the time it takes for blood to circulate around the system, this is called the circulation time, increases. With our furnace analogy, it would be as if the temperature sensor is located a long way away from the furnace. So the message to turn off the heat always arrives a little too late and the house bounces between being too hot and too cold. 
With central apnea physiology, the extra stimulation of breathing that happens with arousals leads to pauses or reduced effort to breathe once sleep resumes. This creates instability. This means that central apneas can occur as a direct result of sleep fragmentation itself. Therefore, any condition that causes you to have arousals from sleep can create an unstable central sleep apnea pattern if the loop gain is high enough. This is why central sleep apnea is so confusing. If you have any source of arousals from sleep, now this is the crazy thing. This is why central apnea physiology is built into all of us. So this is the mixed part that we're going to come to. Well, kind of. yes, because mixed means that you're doing both. So Robert's case, he has both obstructive and central things happening. So this is a puzzle. This is a conundrum. When you tell somebody they have some central sleep apnea part of their thing, what they're going to think is, oh, that's the brain thing. Brain thing. Oh, I got something wrong with my brain. Something wrong with my brain. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And then they'll pick up Googlepedia and they'll find out that central sleep apnea is linked to brain damage, it's linked to strokes, and it's linked to heart failure. And the next thing you know, you've got a panicking patient on your hands. What I want to do here is explain that there's a lot of sliders here. It's a lot of volume knobs that contribute to central apnea physiology. And I guess it's not fair, but that's life. We collect more of that risk as we get older. We know that too many arousals from sleep can lead to daytime impairment. Yes, because they disrupt the sleep because we haven't quite talked about this yet, but sleep occurs in a pattern such that you go from the lighter to deeper stages and back up to awakenings. And if you get awoken out of the deeper stages, you can't get all of your balance of stages that you need. And we'll talk about that in the future. Of course sure. we will. Of course we will. But if the basic idea is that sleep is kind of a metabolic cleaning service mm -hmm. and a neurologic cleaning service. And if you interrupt the maid too many times, the job doesn't get done in the time allotted. I have never heard that as an example, but I love it. I think that that's a really good description of why we care about these disorders, because they're disrupting your sleep and kind of impeding the, the job getting done. So yes. we've talked about the obstructive. We've now talked a lot about the central. Do you feel like you've described everything you I need to I think so. There? You know, I, I feel like Robert is going to want, he, you know, he's looking at himself in the mirror and he's like, why do I have obstructive sleep apnea, doc? You know I mean? Because he's skinny. And everybody's working from the same playbook that says you have to be heavy to have sleep apnea. Now, I think we're a little more sophisticated nowadays. I think people understand that you don't have to be heavy to have sleep apnea. But a lot of people still hear that and they believe it. So uh, most people want to know where it comes from. So let's just go through it. It starts with the nose and it basically ends at the belly. Yep. <laughs> so anything that can cause nasal obstruction. Definitely. Examples of nasal obstructive syndromes include nasal septal deviation, turbinate hypertrophy, valvular collapse, and polyps. So all of those things can cause uh, the nose to feel like it's difficult to breathe through. So those are things that we're not necessarily going to define, but people would know if they had them. They've they heard might. these words and, before. And, and, uh, and, and these are conditions that just make it difficult to get airflow through the nose. Mm -hmm. and, and so listeners who feel that that's a, a problem, 
Um, they might find themselves breathing with their mouths open a lot. It might interfere with exercise, and they might notice it interfering with sleep. The nasal airspace is part of the problem because when you try and suck air through a limited nasal airspace, you're basically pulling air through a resistor. And as you try and suck air down into the thorax through that resistor, the back of your throat is the floppy part of the straw. Mm, and so then you get that collapsing, like yep. if you're trying to suck that milkshake. That's right. Okay. That's right. And if you don't do that, if you just can't breathe through your nose, then when you're sleeping, you're going to open your mouth. And opening the mouth, remember the mandible is a hinge joint. The hinge is located right up by your ears. And your mandible is your jawbone. Is your jawbone, yeah. And when you open your mouth, that jawbone swings backwards. And the tongue actually becomes more backward positioned. So you kind of lose with open mouth breathing. You know, it, get, it allows you to bypass the nose when you're awake. But when you sleep, it sets you up for obstruction. Soft tissue structures back of the throat. So uvula, the tongue, and tonsils and adenoids back there. So all of these structures can be part of the obstructive mass and sometimes are an indication for surgery. And we'll talk about that in a later episode. There's some structures of the face, right, that'll affect this as well. Right. So a narrow facial structure and a a small and backward set jawbone. In the old days, There was a a typical sort of adenoid facies, is what the pediatricians used to call it, from the children that grew up mouth breathing. So they'd have these very narrow faces with these kind of small jaws and this open mouth and this kind of very sad expression because they always had big bags under their eyes. But that's the basic idea is that the narrower the face and the smaller the jaw, the more you're setting up that airway to have problems. Very interesting. So now we get down to the neck. We're thinking the dichotomy here is swan versus bulldog. So the swan neck person is a very long, slender neck, is less at risk. The shorter, stockier build, bulldog build, the shorter neck sets the structures of the upper airway to be relatively lax. So instead of being stretched taut by the swan neck, they're a rubber band that's in the relaxed position. So those soft tissue structures are more likely to collapse when they're, when sleep comes. Additionally, it can be that there's extra mass on there. Could do too, as well. Of course, extra heaviness, meaning adipose tissue fat and extra muscle could all be adding to the stress there. Yeah, because it's not necessarily people that are overweight, but people who have larger builds that are muscular face these challenges as well. Moving down past the neck, we get to the thoracic area. So as we age, our lungs age. Our lungs become less capable of doing their job. And that's true for every year. Every time we revolve around this great son of ours, we lose a little bit of pulmonary function. And so at some point, you may get to a place in your pulmonary decompensation that comes with mortality that you start to have enough desaturations with events that it starts to matter. So aging will bring about more laxity of the upper airway and it brings about more problems with maintaining oxygen saturations in the lungs. We get to the abdomen, then we get to abdominal obesity. And what I mean by that is when you gain weight in your tummy region, that's the most likely to impair pulmonary mechanics. So think about it as if you've got 40 or 50 extra pounds right there under your diaphragm, when you're lying down and trying to passively breathe, that diaphragm doesn't really wanna go places. 
And so the lungs spend a lot of time kind of not fully expanded. Yeah, you can think about if you're ever playing with your nieces, nephews, kids, whoever, and then they're laying on your stomach. That's exactly right. Yeah, you can you can simulate this for yourself with a big Rottweiler or a toddler. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just laying all over you. I've got I've got friends' kids who do that to me. It makes it harder to take a good deep breath. It sure does. Yeah. It sure does. Yeah. And then, of course, the arousal threshold matters in obstructive sleep apnea, too. So whatever's going on upstairs, up in the upper airway, if it causes you to have an arousal from sleep, that's going to make it more problematic. So, you know, your score may be low in terms of apneas and hypopneas, but if you have a lot of flow limitation events and you wake up with them, those would be rearas. That can still be an important problem for you, even though you don't really have a lot of the oxygen dropping events. Mm -hmm. So you're not fitting that criteria necessarily of severity in the AHI. Right. But you have these other physiological things that are going on that are truly affecting your sleep and your quality of your sleep experience. Yep, that's right. So before we finish out this discussion, Robert's going to want to know what's the AHI, what's the RDI? Okay, because those are two common abbreviations that are thrown around that talk about severity of sleep apnea. So I want to make sure everybody knows what those are. And so they talk about the severity of both obstructive and central to bring it back together. They do, they do. And this is why it can be confusing. Because ultimately, the event index is going to be reported as a single index. So you'll get a single report for the AHI, which is the apnea hypopnea index. And all you got to do for this is you count up the number of apneas and the number of hypopneas, whether they're obstructive or central. You add them all up and put them over the number of hours. So you divide by the number of hours. Divide so you're by the number of hours. An average per hour. Per That's hour. The index. And technically per hour of sleep. Okay, for a home sleep apnea test, they sort of estimate that. But on a, on a lab-based study, they'll actually parse it out by when the patient was sleeping by EEG criteria. The criteria of their brain waves. Brain waves, exactly. Yes. Then, so when the patient was awake, that's thrown out of that analysis. Okay. But okay. we don't have the brain waves in the home sleep apnea test. That's right. So, so they estimate total sleep yes. time a little differently yes. there. The bottom line is apneas and hypopneas per hour is the AHI. Pertinent to this discussion and pertinent to next episode is we're going to want to know, well, how many of those were obstructive and how many were central? Because we're going to find out next time that the way we discuss risk is different depending on which flavor we're talking about. Okay. And so Robert had mixed. He had mixed. And so his, just for the, for the listeners, if you're kind of keeping score at home, Robert's AHI was 36 per hour. 22% of his events were judged to be central in mechanism. Okay. What we can say with that is that he's got both obstructive and central physiology. It looks like obstructive was the most prominent, but, you know, uh, one in five events was judged to be a central event. So we're going to have to sort of help Robert understand what that means mm -hmm. now that we understand what it is. Yeah. And we also mentioned that there was another, the RDI, that we need to talk about as well. Absolutely. In the event that your sleep lab scores RIRAs, now RIRAs really can't be scored technically on a home sleep study because you can't really score an arousal. That's not been agreed upon. But in a lab, of course you can. In a lab-based study, you have the EEG, you have the brain wave, so you can score arousals. So if, the, if your lab scores RIRAs, then they may report an RDI in addition to the AHI. So the RDI is the Respiratory Disturbance Index. Respiratory Disturbance Index. 
and that includes all of the above, apneas, hypopneas, and rheras. So it's, a, it's got a little extra information in there. Well, you know, there may be somebody who has an AHI of one per hour, so ostensibly not worrisome, and they've got 17 rheras per hour. So their RDI in that situation would be 18 per hour. Their AHI would be one per hour. In the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, third edition, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has specific criteria for the diagnosis of sleep apnea. And their criteria are, if you have five obstructive events per hour in the setting of certain symptoms, and and they list them in the book, things like snoring, difficulty sleeping, daytime sleepiness, mood disorders, or some sort of problem like hypertension or an arrhythmia. Five events per hour. That includes RERAs. Okay. Okay, so you could have five RERAs per hour, no apneas, no hypopneas, and depression. That would meet the diagnostic criteria for obstructive sleep apnea, according to the ICSD-3. If you have 15 obstructive events per hour, including RERAs, including RERAs, regardless of your other problems or symptoms, you've earned yourself that gold star. Interesting. Interesting. So this is kind of, we've talked about how the line has maybe moved a little bit because we've changed our understanding of what is really going on. I think that the hope here is that we can make treatment available to anyone who needs it. Anyone who needs it. And so this kind of comes back to why you're doing this, right? Yes. So the needs it, it depends on the five reasons to treat. So that's why patients are very well advised to come to the plate with an understanding of why they're here. And that's empowerment. That's the opposite of the anxiety of ignorance. Absolutely. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I feel like if I were Robert, I would understand my mixed sleep apnea at this point with aspects of obstructive and central. Right. We've learned the moving parts of obstructive versus central. Mm -hmm. And I would understand also what my AHI means, the number that was presented to me. Yep. What that means for me, not necessarily in my risk or other. Right. We haven't talked about treat. risk yet, but we just know physically what we're saying. Yes. Okay. So it's a little less scary now. And I'm understanding a little bit more, maybe thinking about why I need to be treated. What kind of treatment would, would come for me? Because, you know, so I'm thinking of myself in that hallway, mm-hmm. the hallway of the doctor is yes. there. Yes. Yeah, so, saying, I'll treat you this way. I'll treat you that yeah, way. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where uh, a lot of people start the journey is that everybody's kind of grabbing at them from the sidelines and many people are there before we've even had the discussion that we had today yeah. that's a scary place to be yep so maybe not not so washed up on the bay of narrative anymore no we, we're kind of ambling along the trail maybe yes. there we should rename this the trail of vocabulary yeah i can kind of see the coffee hut yep, from yep. where i'm at in the hazy mirage <laughs> in the distance Sleep Apnea is an educational production of Empowered Sleep Apnea, LLC. The show is written and performed by David E. McCarty, MD, FAASM, and Ellen Stothard, PhD. All sounds on this production were made by the performers or were cobbled together from public domain sounds we found lying around the house. The theme song this week was performed by Someone Else's Problem. Cartoons this week supplied by a thin man in a black suit who drove away saying, Shh.
Dr. McCarty's endless quest for answers enhanced by meandering. Dr. Stothard's positive outlook this week supported by science. Tune in next time when Robert discovers that the geography of the Isle of Sleep Apnea is not exactly stable. A white rabbit beckoning him to travel to the mysterious and iconic Five Reasons Monument. You shouldn't miss it. And now, coming up next, your sleep medicine dad joke.